Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode number four. I'm Paul. I'm here with Amelia, Donna, and Ken, as always. Ken, how's it going? Doing well. Um, got heat, finally. <laughs> nice. Yes. I know you were struggling with that last week. Yeah, it was uh, a bit of a process of struggling with, you know, trying to figure out how to pay for it. It was not, you know, when you're a homeowner, that's the the one thing that you're not expecting to come uh, knocking at your door is a uh, is a red tagging of your furnace and having to replace your furnace and hot water heater. So um, it cost me uh, a pretty penny and uh, essentially I have a small car in my basement, uh, <laughs> nice and shiny, but no, no uh, XM radio or CD player or anything like that. So um, I've got this, you know, nice little payment to make for the next five years or so. Um, well, fun. at least it didn't happen in, in February. Yeah. 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 Um, and then I um, was working over the weekend to uh, complete some renderings for um, for a client meeting with uh, my client, the, the herbivorous butcher. What? It's a herbivorous butcher. Uh, herbivorous butcher. I know it's what, it's uh, maybe a, you can explain uh, that that client a little bit. Sure. Um, so they are a um, a young brother and sister um, who have developed a um, all natural. Um, vegan um uh, supplement or meat product um for us vegetarians um that is made with all organic uh vegetables and uh, wheat gluten or sorry a wheat protein um or whey sorry yeah whey protein and um they are looking to create a meatless butcher shop in uh in minneapolis so i was able to um I was reading an article and I saw that they were looking to build a space out and I contacted them from that article immediately. And, um, the rest is kind of history at this point. Um, so working with this really, um, kind of hard to look at space in uh, North, Northeast Minneapolis, um, and trying to turn that into a, a 2,400 square foot, um, kitchen and a retail location. And um, their primary, they are their their one their primary client right now is an assisted living facility, and they plan to build a few other uh, locations throughout the country. So yeah, it's been it's been quite an interesting journey, and uh, showed them the designs on Sunday, kind of walked them through the the thinking, and they're really excited by the by the potential for uh, the project. So it's going pretty well. Nice. How how does it taste? I. Not the project. But the, but the, both the both taste very well. The idea, well, the, I'll tell you what tastes well about having the project is I found the I found the client. Um, I I kind of been working with them, and uh, there's, um, it tapped into a skill I wasn't aware that I had, um, which was kind of going out there and putting myself out there and trying to, um, you know, uh, do a little bit of rainmaking, trying to bring networking and try to bring clients in. But the product is, I, I can't tell you, how, I can't say en enough good things about the product. I mean, everyone's had Boca Burgers, had their version of um, products you can buy at whatever store, uh, meatless substitutes uh, or meat substitutes. And this one, is, it everything about it from the texture to the flavor um, to the ingredients, it's spot on. They make an Italian sausage that I, I dare say, um, it, it, can, it will it will fool most people. And in fact, they had a, a food scientist from the university um, come over to um, 
they they have a uh, location in uh, Minneapolis um, farmers market, and they had a food scientist come over and swore up and down that he could taste the fat in it. He could taste all these different things that the texture, everything about it was no. This Italian sausage definitely has meat in it, <laughs> and uh, despite and. He was finally convinced when he showed when they showed him the ingredients list, but he was really he was he was certainly um, certainly confused by the product. So I can vouch for it, you know, um, a little bit of buzz marketing on that on that side of it. But uh, it's really very tasty, and it, they don't just make sausages; they do um, bologna. They've done um, they've created ribs, um, chorizo. Um, and do we sausage? They've they've run the full gamut of uh, products, and I've had most of them. And they even do bacon, so but it's really really good. <laughs> do they ship? Yes, they do. As a matter of fact, oh, I think I have to try it. My kids are just starting to talk about not eating meat because they love animals too much. the uh, The connection between killing animals and eating the meat has hit home for them lately. So maybe. Maybe they would like to try this too. I mean, I want to try it. It sounds delicious. It's fantastic. That's awesome. Neat. Good for you, Ken. Oh, thanks. Going out and getting this this client. You said that you had were starting yeah. to do some of the marketing with the firm, and that's awesome that you uh, that you you brought them in. Yeah, it's a it was a skill. Like I said, it, you know, I was always always wanted to do this, and I wasn't sure. You know, people weren't letting me do it, so I figured, well, maybe they they see something in me that I don't. Maybe they see they don't see that possibility. But then I found that. Wow, I, I can actually talk to people. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you do it every week. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Donna, how's your week been? Oh, I, I have, uh, I've had a good week. Um, I have spent the last week trying to figure out a wall section. And, you know, wall sections are my favorite drawing. I love doing wall sections. Um, but every single time I sit down to do one, I'm like, okay, the vapor barrier goes where? And do I want to insulate under the slab or outside <laughs> the footing? And, uh, yeah, it's just... It's like starting anew every single time. And of course, if I just did the same project over and over, I wouldn't have to rethink it every time I do a wall section. But um, it is my favorite kind of drawing to do. I, I love construction and I love digging into how things actually go together, at least in the drawing realm. But it's been a little humbling. Um, tomorrow I'm off work because I'm going to be up in Muncie all day at Ball State University. I um, I served as the architect of, local architect of record for a pair of architects from uh, Sweden, uh, uh, vision division. And they did this project called the chopstick at the Indianapolis museum of art. Um, I was the local architect for it. And one of the partners, Anders Berenson is, uh, has come over to, uh, ball state to do a, he's going to be there for a couple days doing, um, critiques and giving a talk. And he and I tomorrow are going to serve on a jury together. So I'm, I'm looking forward to going up and critiquing the students. I do it as often as I can. Um, and he's going to give a talk about their work, Vision Division's work, which they've actually done. Speaking of animals, they did a really cool project for a um, a home for crayfish, for crawdads. Uh, there's a, a festival, I guess, that involves crawdads and you want to have them on your land so that you can um, just pluck them out of the stream and, and eat them fresh. And so they actually built a, a house, a habitat for crawfish for a client. So um, they, they, and they just do really fun, crazy kind of work. So, um, yeah, so I'm going to be up in, in amongst architecture students all day tomorrow and I'm really looking forward to it. Wow. That's, uh, that sounds fun. Vision and visions. Uh, that, that's the name, right? Vision and vision. Vision division. Vision division. Yeah. Their work is, is really interesting. Very fun. Yeah. They probably did a, uh, a Guggenheim submission actually. <laughs> <laughs> and it's shaped like a crawfish. No <laughs> it might it be. <laughs> Amelia. How are you doing? 
I'm doing good. Um, I like hearing every week what Ken and Donna are up to because you guys just never seem to stop working. Whereas <laughs> I, on my weekends, just kick back and watch a lot of television, which is uh, what I'd like to actually talk about. <laughs> Great. Um, I've I've started watching this amazing television show called 1864. This is a uh, originally broadcast uh, on Denmark on Danish television. Um, and it's in Danish, which is part of my overall scheme to myself, teach myself Danish. But uh, this television show is a historical drama, just a one season historical drama about the second Schleswig war, which was like the Confederacy of German, which Germany, which wasn't quite Germany yet, um, against the kingdom of Denmark. And it's just this fantastic historical drama with like uh, every Danish celebrity who's an actor in it because Denmark is so small. They only have so many actors. So whenever you watch Danish television, you're like, oh, that guy and that guy and that guy. And you quickly feel part of the community. Um, but Donna, you brought up uh, Swedish, uh, the Swedish design firm as well. Um, there's another great te uh, television show that is a Danish-Swedish uh, collaboration called The Bridge, which was actually made into a American TV show by the same name. Um, and the show is about a grisly murder that takes place on this bridge that connects Malmo, Sweden and Copenhagen, Denmark. And the murder takes place exactly on the boundary line between the two cities. So perfect buddy cop uh, set up two misfit cops have to work together to figure out the murder. Um, and it was so popular and such a great drama that it became a, um, an American show that they retrofitted it for, um, American audiences by being in, I believe Las Cruces, Mexico, or excuse me, Las Cruces and, um, the borders town in Texas. So I'm not exactly sure what two cities it was, but it was, I think it was between Texas and Mexico. Really cool show. Um, yeah, I'm just watching television while everyone else is hard at work. But uh, it, these are great, great shows. And there's another one as well um, that was also adapted into American television called The Killing, which was also extremely popular. So I encourage everyone to reach back into the Danish archives and find these original shows. Um, they all have English subtitles. Um, I'm sure you can find if you watch it online and uh, some great TV drama there. So that was <laughs> that was my weekend. Paul, maybe you had something that drifted you away from a television screen. Um, I yeah, not too much television this weekend. It was a it was kind of a crazy weekend. We discovered in a um, not so nice way that the Florida ceiling glass windows in our relatively new uh, mid century modern house. Uh, are not tempered. <gasps> oh and no! There was was yeah. there blood? Oh god! I hope everyone's okay. There was, yeah, there was, but everybody's okay. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a real eye opener. I, I just, I don't know. I just assumed that they would be the the windows would have been updated at some point. But um, yeah, that was kind oh. of a, a a dark dark point in the weekend. Um, on a on a lighter note, we, my family and I went to. The uh, the Rise Pumpkin Festival at uh, here in um, in Los Angeles at the Descanso Gardens. It was a huge, huge pumpkin uh, carved pumpkin exhibition with like five thousand carved pumpkins. Um, it's it looked like it was going to be really cool, but I was I was actually really disappointed. Uh, there were some amazing pumpkin carving going on, but I would say the majority of the pumpkins were just like. Uh, TV and movie posters kind of look like CNC milled onto the onto the uh, the skin of the pumpkins. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a little disappointing, especially considering it was a pretty expensive event. But um, I wouldn't necessarily endorse that event if anybody 
listening is is uh, interested in checking that out because I know it's going on and for the next week or so. When I hear Pumpkin Festival in California, it kind of makes me giggle because I'm in the Midwest. And of course, here it's perfect, perfect autumn day today. You know, 60 degrees, bright blue sky. The leaves are just stunning colors. And uh, I was riding around with the top down in the car and it's it's just perfect. The seasons here are amazing. So um, I know that Louisville does an excellent pumpkin festival. So next year, y'all just need to come out to, to Louisville. I, I think so. Yeah. I, I remember the first time I went to a big pumpkin patch, um, which didn't happen until I had kids, uh, since, you know, my, my single self wasn't that interested in going pumpkin picking yeah. around Christmas time. But, um, I remember the first time we went, it was like 95 degrees outside and yeah. the pumpkins <laughs> were all melting. They were just, you know, like rotting in this field. And it was not exactly the experience I was expecting. Sorry. California does so many things well, but the Midwest does fall really well. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seasons are not, are not LA's strong point. I miss seasons. You're, you're, <laughs> you're so much better at so many other things though. Speaking of which, hoverboards. <laughs> yeah, we've got a pretty exciting guest today. We've got the inventor of the new hoverboard. There have been a few hoverboards that have kind of popped up in the news in the last few years, but I don't think any were really legit. But there's one on the market now that actually works as proven by uh, video footage. And it's, uh, it's on Kickstarter. They've already surpassed their goal. So we're going to be uh, talking today with Greg Henderson and his wife, Jill Henderson, who are the founders of Arcs Packs. Uh, Greg is actually an architect by education, and he's moved into this uh, very cool field of uh, electromagnetic levitation, which actually has much, much greater potential than simply uh, the hoverboard. So let's, let's talk with him now. So we're talking today with Greg Henderson and Jill Henderson, uh, who founded Arcs Packs in 2012 um, in the Bay Area. And uh, we're talking specifically with Greg Henderson, who uh, you guys recently put out um, a Kickstarter campaign to fuel a hoverboard, which has gotten everyone really excited. And we looked into it a little bit and we learned that Greg has an architecture background. So um, Greg, Jill, welcome to Arcanex Sessions. Thanks, Amelia. Thank you. Um, so Greg, I'm going to run through a little bit of your history and you can correct me <laughs> if you like, but um, to set up like your architecture curve, um, I wanted to ask you first how you got into architecture because your first degree, as far as I know, is a BS in West Point in engineering in the late 80s. So um, how did you get into architecture after that? Well, you know, we all start out in life with our our stuff and a lot of it for me had to do with doing what I what I thought I should be doing for other folks rather than pursuing my own dreams. And it wasn't until I was well into adulthood when I realized what I really ought to be doing is is building stuff. And because architecture seemed like the best way to do that, I got out of the army, I joined a construction crew and uh, took every class I could at our local community college West Valley. Uh, which, by the way, has uh, just an amazing architecture program. So that was the start. Okay. Um, and then later on, uh, I believe in 2000, you went to UC Berkeley to pursue a master's of architecture degree. What was the intermediate period between those, uh, between taking the initial architecture courses and then going into the master's degree? You'll, you'll see me circle back to what I think is really important, uh, particularly for those folks interested in in architecture and and building the, the time I spent on a crew 
uh, starting as a laborer and then learning the skills of a carpenter on a framing crew. That's what I was doing at the same time I was taking these classes at West Valley and then eventually transitioning into working at a firm. I uh, worked at, at Square 3 Design Studios in, in Palo Alto and uh, learned a great deal from Carl Hess there about you know, how to actually get things built. And that's when I, I applied to the, the master's program at Berkeley and, and started there in 2000. The whole time, uh, in fact, in my portfolio, in, in the initial application process, the, the first entry in the portfolio was a, a self-portrait of me wearing carpenter's bags. It was from the back uh, on a building site talking about being empowered with the education I would need to be able to design for Mother Nature's bad days. And I was thinking at the time about hurricanes, about earthquakes, floods, and that's not where most architects start. I realized that. But that was where my passion uh, lay, and, and that's the direction I went in from the very beginning. Certainly a concern for most people living in the Bay Area. I would presume more more of an architecture background for people in the Bay Area are going to be concerned with our, with things like um, flooding and earthquakes and maybe elsewhere in the country. But So how did that parlay into you and Jill founding ArcsPax? Well, uh, you know, that's where it got really exciting because for years I was working on this this new system for building. And what you might not be aware of is that in July of this year, ArcsPax was issued a patent for what we call a three-part foundation system. And this foundation system essentially is uh, base isolation, but an order of magnitude, uh, well, more base isolated. And what that really is, is, a, is a, it's a new way of decoupling structure from the earth. And one of the key components of that, and, and you can look that patent up, uh, or we can send you a link, or one of the, the key components of that is what we call the buffer medium. And the buffer medium is typically a liquid. It can be a gas. But we asked ourselves, why not an electromagnetic field? If you can hover a train, why not a house? And that's where we started. And, and I really started getting into the research of it. And I realized that, that all the patents, all the intellectual property for magnetically levitated trains, it was for moving trains, moving objects. There was no good way to levitate uh, using electromagnetic energy, an object, particularly with a dynamic load in a stationary position. That's when, uh, again, we had the first of many epiphanies in, in just how you could do that. And, and that's uh, when we discovered that and did some early testing. The realization was, well, uh, how can we do this? Because we, we really approach this as a responsibility. It's our duty to get this out there because it is a way we know. It's something we can do now to save lives and property and communities from natural disasters. So how can we get this into the public consciousness? What would be the most effective way of demonstrating this technology? A hoverboard. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, and it didn't come out the quite, it was really fascinating because we were literally sitting in our living room and he was tinkering and building and trying things. And all of a sudden he got this first prototype to hover and the aha happened in his face. I mean, his eyes lit up and he said, not only can we hover buildings, I can build a hoverboard and, you know, making the impossible possible. And that that's kind of um, an, an exciting start as well. Has the response to the hoverboard been what you what you were expecting or uh, can you describe the kind of response that you've received? Paul, great question, because it was not what we expected. 
we, or I, I guess I personally, had the, the misconception that people would instantly translate this hoverboard technology into, oh my gosh, what, what can we do with this? But there are a lot of folks whose dreams are tied up in hoverboards, and they frankly don't care about the other applications. So that was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, that's what, I, uh, that's what I've noticed. There's been a lot of excitement about the, the hoverboard ever since Back to the Future came out. And I think it, it's been in, it's been in uh, many people's dreams. Um, what kind of, what kind of uh, applications do you see for this technology um, in the future with, with uh, architecture? Well, I'll just pause for a second and I want to come back to architecture, but there's a lot of applications that, that I, I know will be near and dear to a lot of architects' hearts in the areas of sustainability. Transportation is an obvious one. Uh, automation, entertainment, of course, there's space applications. Uh, but in architecture, last night I met with a, a structural engineer who, my personal structural engineer of choice, who has uh, been working with me uh, for for years now. And he actually had the idea, looking at the recent earthquake we went through, or the, the Napa experience. Apparently, there were there was colossal damage to the wine industry uh, in the form of a lot of broken wine bottles. I mean, huge, you know, millions and millions of dollars uh, worth of wine. Now, that is, is a, a simple case study in, in what we could do to prevent this. And it's an example, uh, a stepping stone example, much like the hoverboard, where we can provide wine racks and wine storage facilities that can take advantage of the early warning system on the, the faults that exist today. Right now, those early warning systems are very limited in, in, in how they can be used. The doors on fire stations open up and, and emergency generators are started in, in critical buildings. But with a few seconds warning, we can actually hover what we want to isolate and then allow the earthquake to, to do its thing. And then no one in that structure or that piece of equipment never experienced any shaking at all. So with the levitation technology, does that function in a similar way as a traditional rolling strategy with earthquake proof? No. Uh, and, and as I uh, covered last night, uh, if you look at base isolation, for instance, Steve Jobs, his Pixar studio, uh, the Hearst Mining Building at Berkeley, uh, I can give you many, many cases. The way base isolation works, and again, I, and I realize most architects probably don't care how it works, but the the way it works is that you take that shaking, that destructive force, and you convert some of that force into a, a longer movement. So the building moves much more than the ground as far as lateral displacement, um, but it's much, much softer, uh, and it's at a period that's not destructive to the structure itself. So this is completely different because you don't need a moat. If the ground in an earthquake moves six inches, let's say, back and forth rapidly, all we need is, a, is a six inches to accommodate that, and the, and the structure would never move, unlike base isolation and the rolling systems that we have now. Uh, Greg, this is uh, Ken. Just um, hearing about some of the applications that you talked about, I, I could see the potential for even uh, emergency services getting into into critical um, areas where trucks can't get in is that is that also a part of your thinking about how to access areas that aren't always accessible by vehicles? I can think of 
you know, just um, a more universally um, accessible environment where people who have even in with wheelchairs would traditionally have a difficult time in many environments. Could this be also applied in that area as well? Absolutely, Ken. And you've, you've touched on a, on a couple things that I want to cover. Accessibility, yes. Uh, in fact, one of the prototypes we're working on is a, is a hover chair. The, also, the issue of, of the essential services buildings, uh, these are buildings that need to be able or they need to be operational after an event. And for instance, in California, it, it is uh, earthquake protection and understanding how those buildings uh, can function after an earthquake and the higher standard that needs to be met for those buildings is really important. So all of those buildings, essential services buildings in particular, can take advantage of this and ought to. Beyond that, there's the, the notion of sustainability. You can take a lead platinum building, something like the sustainability base at NASA Ames, which we recently uh, got a tour of. That building, if it can't survive an event, is not sustainable. All of that embodied energy, all of those materials are lost. And there is a better way to build. And I realize that that the construction industry is the biggest industry in this country. And and I guess as a subset, then the biggest industry in the world, just given the, the, the difficulty we've had in trying to, to change to the metric system, this is an uphill battle. What we need is an example project to be built as, as soon as possible. And we're looking for those strategic partners now to get this done, where we can demonstrate a way that is a more effective way to build for these types of disasters. And by the way, it, you know, if you walk at a, you look at an area in the Bay Area, for instance, the most neglected, the most, and I'm trying to, I'm searching for the right word, the areas that, that are suffering the most now um, are geographically in the center of the Bay. They are the, the low-lying areas around the San Francisco Bay that are unbuildable. And they're unbuildable because they're in a, a 10 or 12-foot floodplain, and, and rightfully so. These are not places that, that we should build until now. All of a sudden, this undervalued land, and if you look at it from a real estate development standpoint, this, this undervalued land is the single biggest line item in a pro forma, all of a sudden is buildable. And, and if we do it properly, we can accomplish all sorts of things. Uh, and I, I just can't wait to sit down and, and, and uh, you know, find that, that client, that, that interested party who is really ready to start exploring these new techniques. Uh, and for the architects, Donna, Ken, imagine for a second uh, a building where you can you can design it with just one side of the building uh, with the proper fenestration for solar gain and passive cooling and heating. And you know, as it the sun goes through its its course, they can track the sun. Uh, or you could orchestrate the views uh, based on occupancy and, and and what the what the inhabitants of that building, the users of the, that building want. I think it's, it would be a fantastic tool for people to take advantage of. You know, I, it seems like the, with this kind of technology, the, the possibilities are endless. I mean, I'm just looking up right now and I see snowboarding is, um, snowboarding magazine has actually looked at this at your hoverboard. The, the one question I have for you is that given your, your military uh, background, is it a concern of yours with this kind of technology that it can be weaponized in some shape or form and actually the Defense Department actually finds a, a really interesting use for this technology? Does that, does that bother you at all? You know, it is, uh, it is one of those things. Every tool can be used for good or evil. We have specifically avoided DARPA uh, because we're not interested in going down that road. But 
to stand in the way of, of a good idea because of its potential negative applications is not the way we look at problems. Th that would be, I mean, a hammer can be used for good or evil, uh, and, and so can magnetic field architecture. Well, it seems right now that regardless of any potential military application, you have a lot of people very interested in the hoverboard as it stands, um, or as it flows, I should say. Um, the Kickstarter is currently valued at over 376000 So you've already surpassed the quarter million goal of 250000 and you have about 47 days to go. Um, so there's clearly no uh, lack of attention and desire for such a product. But um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about how you're going to get this into people's hands, because as I understand it right now, you're offering a developer kit, um, which means that people can basically buy the ability to create the hovering technology, but then apply it in within the limitations of the current design, apply it in however way they might like. So uh, I was wondering, maybe you could explain a little bit about who currently, if you know, um, is interested in getting these developer kits and who might be your prime uh, audience for that kind of technology. This is where I get really excited. I, I'm, uh, I'm so glad you asked because in a lot of cases, the role of the architect is simply overcoming human resistance to change, whether it's the NIMBY equation, whether it's uh, convincing a, a, a planning commission, the neighbors, wh whatever. The, the hurdle is overcoming this human resistance to change. And by providing these white box developer kits and the white box plus, which is plus propulsion and control, uh, we're trying to tap into that that inner architect in, in everybody who who wants to to understand how this works. And this is and I haven't specifically talked to an audience of architects. So let me just uh, share another piece that, frankly, I don't think we've shared with anyone yet. And that is the tools that we use to discover magnetic field architecture. Uh, we're going to include those tools with the developer kits. And, and what are those? They're a new way of visualizing and thinking about how magnetic fields work. And how do we do that? Well, you know, I'm an architect, and I, I think I would approach it like, like you guys would. And that is uh, the old physics textbook explanation of magnetic field with a bar magnet and iron filings. This doesn't do it justice. One of the first things we did, uh, and in the beginning it was me and Jill and an architectural intern, Victor Espinosa, who went to CCA, who's been with us from the very beginning, Victor had him with a vector Gauss meter do a digital model in our CAD software of choice, Vectorworks, do a digital model of what a magnetic field looked like with regards to magnitude and direction. And it wasn't anything like we expected. And it gave us a new perspective on how to look at things. One of the, the most amazing things that I've learned in architecture was from my mentor, uh, Mike Lormer at West Valley, and that was his design process. And the first step of that design process was to explore the full range of possibilities. In fact, uh, I think actually the first one was to gather all the information available. The, the second step was to explore the full range of possibilities. And I am constantly reminding our staff, whatever the problem, let's look at all the possibilities. So we're not just looking outside the box, but completely off the page, because that's the kind of three-dimensional thinking that apparently it took an architect to sort of approach this problem slightly differently. I'm, I'm actually really excited about this, uh, the white box developer kit that you've offered in Kickstarter. And it sounds like there's going to be all kinds of interesting 
applications that you may have not even considered yet. Um, have you thought about creating a platform to share that those those ideas, or is there a way that people can share these ideas with you uh, after receiving the kit? Oh, absolutely, and not only. Uh, sharing the ideas, we plan on having a, a blog that addresses, um, you know, all the questions and ideas. And when, even help people yes. support them in their endeavors of discovery and exploration. One of the things uh, that, that I don't think much of the world knows is the patent law in the United States changed on March 15th, 2013. The rules have changed. It's no longer a first to invent world. It's a first to file world. And that puts the little guy at a significant disadvantage. If someone comes up with a great idea, uh, we want them to, to, to document it, bring it to us. They're the named inventor, and we'll help get the system to, to take your ideas to the market, to, to you know, assist those folks who would otherwise have no means of, of getting the patent protection that our Constitution guarantees. So you're also go- going to be available for assistance with uh, developers and, and – uh... Uh, hobbyists that are playing with this technology with the developer kit? We would really like to, and I don't know how this is going to unfold, but I'm convinced that the discoveries and the the opportunities to to solve real problems in all sorts of areas that we haven't even considered, that's what really gets us going. And ArxPax, Hendo Hover, Hendo Hover is the hoverboard arm of ArxPax, and ArxPax is Latin for the Citadel of Peace. And when you think about where we came from, being able to isolate and protect people and property and communities from the ravages of earthquakes and floods. I think you will understand the name, but that's where we want to get this, this technology out there as soon as possible. So how do you think your background in architecture has contributed to, um, to the development of, of this uh, endeavor? I think that if I could leave a message for the architecture community and the, our arch- architectural education system, I would say, or I'd like to see more focus on on how to actually build. You know, you don't know Douglas fir until you've driven 100,000 nails. Uh, knowing your materials, knowing what they can do and what they can, what they can't do, what they should do and shouldn't do, understanding really how to build. The art will happen. The art, you can't stop it. The design, that, that's going to happen. But to really empower or take back some of the, the responsibility, some of the well, the responsibility that the architecture world has has ceded to everyone else, all of the, the subcontractors, all of the, the other professionals in, in the system to really become, again, architects, chief builders. And and that's what I'd really like to see. Great. I think we're at the same uh, the same place. I think, Donna, you've got a question. I just wanted to say, I, you know, I'm most excited about the white box. I think this notion that you can share this technology and then we all get to play with it and see what comes up out of, out of experimenting with it. It's very much akin to studio environment in architecture school that you learn from your peers and you watch what they're doing. And um, I'm really excited about that. But I wanted to just say I've been reading a lot of the comments about the hoverboard and um, I think that uh, many people were sort of obsessed by this notion of a hoverboard and they are now feeling disappointed. Um, And I just wanted to say that I think commenters about the hoverboard have been as very similar to how architects tend to comment on other architects work frequently, you know, sort of pointing out, oh, it's not, you know, just pointing out shortcomings. But I, I think overall people are really excited about this opportunity to play with the technology. 
Donna, yeah. thanks. We want to see what you can do. Absolutely. Yeah, but you know, and I do want to say, Donna, we I, I really appreciate that comment. Um, and not in defense of the hoverboard lovers, but we're very sensitive to them because it's it's one of those things where you bring a dream of of theirs, this pent up hoverboard demand for decades, and you bring it to them, and then all of a sudden, you know, they see a twist of oh, but they want to do other things, and we wanted we want them, the hoverboard community, to also know that we plan to see that through absolutely, and we hope to find passionate partners that want to take that and develop a whole new sport. And um, hoverboarding is here. <laughs> I think we're all excited about it. Donna, we're just really glad that you get it. Thank yes. you. Yes. Well, besides the obvious excitement for the uh, upcoming hoverboard that we've all been waiting for, I think this technology in general has incredibly exciting possibilities. So we're, we're uh, going to be looking forward to seeing how that, how that evolves. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank well, you, guys. Thank, thank you for having us. Thanks. All right. So that was a really interesting talk. Um, I think Greg is a perfect person to add to our Working Out of the Box series. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with the Working Out of the Box series, it was a, it was a series of features that we started a few years ago, right? As the recession started kicking everyone's ass. Uh, it was at a time when there were a lot of architects out there out of work and unable to get any work because there weren't any uh, openings for for architects because the building industry had pretty much uh, come to a standstill. So we started uh, featuring architects that have utilized their background in architecture, their education in architecture, and applied that to other fields and found success in those fields. And so over the years, we've, we've featured a lot of really interesting, diverse individuals. Um, we featured uh, TV hosts, uh, we featured interactive designers. We've featured furniture designers. Uh, recently, we we featured a really amazing individual that um, named Francis Tsai that uh, has uh, Lou Gehrig's disease and is a comic book illustrator and is able to continue doing these amazing comic book illustrations using um, retina scanning technology. Um, and he also came from an architecture background. Um, and the, the more we do this, uh, the more we publish articles in this series, the more we hear from other people that have, that have applied their architecture experience into other fields. Um, do, any of the, do any of these features stand out in your minds that you might want to share with us? Well, me in particular, I really liked um, a recent, relatively recent feature that we did with Emily Fisher, who um, is a quilt maker, um, former architect, who is the classic recession case. She was booted out of her job, um, I think around 2008, 2009, um, kind of floated around and just said, you know what, I'm immediately going to just start putting my hands back to work. And um, she started making these beautiful quilts um, that have very specific geomapped um, embroidery on them. So I think she's a Michigan native, so she has this beautiful one of the Great Lakes. Um, she has one of, the, of a certain field of constellations. Um, and all of this stuff that she just could basically sustain herself off of out of a simple studio working with her hands with a handful of other people um, creating these specific objects. She also does stuff like um, fabric kites that are shaped like sailboats, which is something that I couldn't really believe actually worked until I saw it. Um, if you go to the feature, there's an amazing photo of her flying this fabric-made <laughs> sailboat. Um and so Emily's story was just kind of, it really struck me because of how 
not only how um, symptomatic her case was and how emblematic her case was of the overall recession of like she was just one of these first to go. Um, and now she just immediately picked it up and has made a real business out of it. Um, and if I could afford her blankets, I totally would get one <laughs> because I think they're beautiful. And it was just a very inspiring story. Um, so I, that, that's my uh, working out of the box of choice. Yeah, mine is uh, Lorraine Henning. She has a, a master's degree in architecture. I think she resides now in Australia. And uh, she did this wonderful book, uh, a little pamphlet, uh, Architecture. I think it's, uh, from what I understand, it's based on her uh, master thesis. And it's um, it's really uh, just filled with these lovely, lovely drawings. Um, they are very well done. And the, and the book was, uh, was on a she was trying to fund, uh, through Indiegogo. Um, and I don't think she received all of the funding, but, um, it's called a practical guide to squatting. And, uh, one of the things that you get the sense from just reading the the story is that, you know, she's not, doesn't seem like she's going to return to architecture and, uh, she's quite comfortable with that. And, and it seems like the, the architecture school and the background and the training she has kind of gave her the confidence to kind of pursue whatever she, whatever she set her mind to. And she's not, doesn't seem like she's looking back and she's quite, quite happy doing what she's doing. In fact, I thought one of the nice quotes that was highlighted on here was in the last year I've worked as a cattle, uh, I worked as a cattle driver, apple picker, tree remover, and onion picker. So, I mean, you know, to be able to, to find um, that passion through architecture uh, school and, you know, and have a zest for kind of um, exploration and it's kind of reflected in, uh, the pamphlet, at least in the drawings I saw. And, um, so that, that one is, uh, that one always, uh, sticks with me because it reminds me so much of things that I enjoy in, uh, in the profession. Yeah. One of the very first, I think, uh, out of the box features was on Annie Mohopt, who owns a, founded and owns a, a company called Mohop Shoes. And when, they, when she, when they were, when she was published with these shoes, I just thought they were the perfect shoes for architects, uh, only for women at this point, sorry. Um, but they are, uh, they're basically a wood wedge um, that you can every day lace up differently with different laces and ribbons and things that you can, you can, you basically design your own footwear every day. And I, I bought two pair immediately when the feature came out. Um, and since uh, just this week, she's announced a whole new line of these shoes and they have leather uh, straps and they're all very different. And, you know, I think similar to what uh, we just spoke about with Greg, with the hoverboard, he said he, you know, he just wants to make things and he was really interested in making things all the time. And Annie said that, you know, she just, she wanted to be in the wood shop every day. She was working in architecture, but that was where she really um, found what she wanted to be doing with her hands and with her mind. Um, and so she's still got this shoe company going strong many years later. It's been what, Paul, it's been since 2008 that this feature has been going. So, yeah, we uh, we started it. I think in in early 2009. Uh, I'm just guessing because uh, that's about when the recession started uh, <laughs> affecting architects. Oh yeah, but uh, yeah, I think I think it's been so. It's been about five years. Yeah, I uh, I ended up using several of the out of the box um, features featured people uh, with my professional practice course at Ball State University in 2009 2010. Um, you know, I had these students that were, they were grad students taking a pro practice course in their last semester of school, basically. And um, they were about to graduate into a field, uh, a, a landscape where they didn't see the possibility for employment in a firm at all, pretty much. Um, and so I was showing them these these people and saying, you know, you, you need to use your skills creatively and come up with something you can do with them. Um, I think they found it 
very actually somewhat and you know fairly inspiring that there could be other realms that you could take your design skills to. I mean, I tend to lean towards the ones that make things, like Annie and like um, Doug Johnston, who was a Cranbrook grad, and it was cool for me to see that he took his skills from Cranbrook and is now making uh, these handwoven baskets that are very beautiful. Yeah, Doug's work is so nice. He used to be a regular contributor on Archonnect too back back in the day. Yeah, he had a student blog while he was at Cranbrook. Um, and then, you know, he was so successful that Target ripped him off. So yay, Target, said sarcastically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true sign of, of success. When Target or, or uh, Urban Outfitters starts ripping you off, you know that you've made it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, one of the other things that's striking about the series, and I've made this point to Paul before, is that uh, a lot of the um, working out of the box um, designers uh, are women. And so if the profession wants to see what's happening with, you know, members of their profession, they don't have to go too far to understand why women are leaving because they're actually finding, finding themselves in uh, places where they have autonomy, they are self-motivated, and they're absolutely creative and don't have to answer to a lot of and deal with a lot of the same bullshit that they have to deal with in, a, in an office environment. So, you know, the NCAR, NCARB and AIA, they want to look at what's going on and they can... They just have to look at this and working outside the box really kind of points the path to and gives a lot of, I think, a lot of strength and emboldens a lot of people that there is a path outside of architecture, that it's not all about buildings, that there are hoverboards to be made. There are shoes, there are books, there are quilts. There's a whole world out there that needs to be designed and, and presented in a way that um, it doesn't have to happen all the time in a building. I think you're absolutely right, Ken, that that a lot of people, I mean, for many architects and many people in architecture school, the notion of being your own boss and running your own your own business is really something they, they want to do. There's a high percentage of people in architecture school, I think, who imagine themselves running their own design firm someday. But in the short term, um, those skills can be used in, in ways that aren't just designing buildings. And you're absolutely right that in Carbon AIA, these are the people we, we want to keep within the fold of the profession. They're doing creative work. They're engaging in interesting um, activities, not just of making things, but like, um, Paul, you were talking, uh, I think you mentioned earlier someone who is uh, uh, we work, who's doing, um, looking at how we work in the world, not just making physical things, but how we actually conduct business in the world. Yeah, that's uh, Miguel McKelvey. Uh, he's a, a friend of mine, actually, from we, we studied architecture together at the University of Oregon way back in the mid 90s. And he has he's found huge success in his uh, startup called WeWork, which is co-working spaces that have now just uh, spread out all around the world. I think uh, the most recent uh, location just opened in London. Uh, where they are truly reinventing the way that people are working in um, in this new work environment that that uh, the web and 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 new you know our culture today is is allowing. Yeah, I loved reading that feature for WeWork because I what I really like about working out of the box is not just how it's all of these different elaborations on what is effectively the same education, the same skill set, but how it's seen not only as a reaction to the recession, but also couched very much in the whole like DIY ethos that also was a product of the recession of people getting more and more um, interested in doing their own things and building their own things and learning how their own things worked. Um, and I see this feeding directly into the next phase after DIY being more about sharing things, how we now have this thing that probably needs a better term, but as of now it's called the sharing economy and how 
all I see things like working out of the box as being kind of the the first glimpse of where these different types of businesses first started getting established, like realizing that, okay, I need to find a different avenue to apply my skills. And then how I can do that is create this one maybe specific design niche. And then from there, forming all these connections. And I think McGill's example of WeWork is like the perfect encapsulation of that. of like starting this business where he gets to not only use his design skills to create the actual spaces or, or design the actual spaces that um, he then creates for communal working spaces, but then has the business that puts that out into the world. Um, so I think that's just a fantastic uh coordination of all of these different things going on in the economy at that time. Do you think the architecture industry is suffering from a form of uh, brain drain by allowing these people to, to uh, <laughs> get out of the architecture industry? Is, is architecture not giving these, you know, tremendously talented people an opportunity um, yes. to stay within architecture? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to go back to the, you know, I think the this idea that persists and I don't, I just don't buy it anymore that, uh, well, I'm stuck doing toilet details or um, toilet room details or door details. It, that, that kind of notion is kind of ebbed away. But I think that this idea that you need to stand in line and wait for your turn is still prevalent. It's still pretty much it, it exists. And I don't think that, I mean, let's just look around the architecture in, in the United States. I mean, by and large, it's really just rather banal and, and there's nothing really very interesting happening. And then when it does happen, it happens on a much smaller scale, not on a large scale and not into public buildings the way other countries seem to treat uh, treat those buildings. So I, I think that there's a lot of talent here that tends to go to OMA, <laughs> goes to um, uh, you know Big or some of these other firms that are, that are doing work in places where they do allow. It's it's remarkable to me that China can unshackle their. I mean, I know there were there, the weird architecture thing is happening, but there's still this unshackling and al allowance for for great. Um, expansive amount of uh, diversity in terms of creativity. And it just doesn't happen here in the States. And I think that's kind of part of why, you know, we go into the school for five years and we're thinking that we're going to go out, be these great designers. But at the same time, you know, we're told once we get out, we got to stand in line and wait our turn. It also, uh, it seems like the working out of the box series and, and, you know, all of these examples of people that have successfully gone off on their own, might, you know, be an indication of how difficult it is to progress as an architect, you know, like what would these people be doing if they didn't find a ton of success doing their own thing outside of architecture? Would they still be doing, you know, uh, stair details? Would, would their talent not get recognized? You know, I, I don't know if, um, you know, are there, do, do you guys as, as practicing architects, maybe you and, and, uh, Donna and Ken, you can, you can maybe provide some insight into this, but do you feel like it's, it's hard to, to move forward? Yes. I, I mean, I know many architects older than me who are basically have been practicing, but severely burnt out for the last 20 years because they, they, you know, they maybe never had a chance to, um, to do their own thing. Maybe they, I don't know, you know, certainly could have had children too soon or never made enough money to quite feel financially stable enough to embark on something like this. I mean, I think, I, I think even now there are, it's, sorry, it's a very depressing thought, but I do think there are many, many just burnt out, unenthusiastic architects practicing because they're, 
they're scared to take the leap and try to do something that would allow them to follow their passion. Now, I do think that since the recession, frankly, I am seeing a whole lot more people, both young and older or my age, you know, saying, hell, I, I, if I'm ever going to do it, I have to do it now. So they're, you know, they're trying things out. They're doing things on their own. Um, but I, I think that the, the profession has been incredibly harsh to young people and it's been very, very hard to, to move forward. I think I'm in an environment now in Indianapolis where the, um, the, the general, uh, uh, community of local architects is generally supportive of one another. There's certainly, um, competition, but I think in some other markets, in some places I have been, there's just cutthroat competition between architects. And so it's not really a sense of, you know, you feel like you're really going to have to struggle and claw every bit of the way to make any advancement. Um, you know, I happen to be, I guess, in a very friendly environment right now in Indianapolis where we're, we're all, for the most part, it's, it's a generally supportive environment. But I do think that it can be a very discouraging profession. Well, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the working out of the box series is going to look like, you know, in the next few months or few years, hopefully if the, if the, if it continues the way it has, because right now it's a very different situation than it was back in 2009. Um, I mean, if you've looked at the, at, at the job board on Arconnect recently, there are a ton of jobs available. And from what we're hearing from employers, there are not enough architects out there to fill the, all the positions. So, you know, I mean, right now for people that are, that are doing their own thing, getting out of architecture, it's really a choice. You know, it's, it's probably not so much out of necessity as it was back, back, uh, in 2009. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking in a, from a, from a general kind of perspective, looking at, looking at the, the state of the industry, um, in the nation, there might be, there might be, uh, many, smaller locations or, or, or specific locations that are struggling, um, relative, but, um, I think it'll be interesting to see how this, how this series evolves. Yeah. I think speaking generally, um, from surveying also a lot of the different people we featured in working out of the box, one that we did recently was, um, for Otat Myers, I hope I'm saying that correctly, which was a design company formed by two former GSDers. And I believe one of them, if not both of them, are still practicing architects or still working in architecture while they also run this um, handbag accessory kind of company on the side. So they were, if if they were reacting from kind from to a uh, surplus in the economy and not having to feel like they had to put themselves out so much in order to get work, then this is how they uh, elaborated on that. This is how they exercised that. They decided to do more. Um, so if, if we can transition even further, like Paul's, you were saying maybe 10 years or so later, um, into when people who left during the recession may consider coming back and seeing what that's like, seeing what people who spent 20 years in Thailand <laughs> in between, um, the recession and coming back to the U S to practice architecture, what kind of market that creates for people looking for architecture work and people for people looking to hire architects. That's what's something I'm really excited for. Well, and I think the, the one last thing I wanted to say to what Paul was saying is that it, I think part of the problem is that AIA and everyone have missed what happened, really, I think, in the, during the recession. A lot of schools added different programs. I know NJIT added um, more programs to their – when I went there, it was just architecture, and um, I don't – they didn't have anything else. They had um, at the School of Architecture, it was just architecture and the master's program, but they've added other disciplines to the program. So I think they started to see 
that maybe not tying students down to five years of debt and coming out and not really wanting to be architects, but wanting to go into other areas that were tangential or operate around the edges. So maybe maybe the loss, the brain drain is you can't recover from. So maybe the notion, I mean, it's still, there's still this pressure on the downward pressure on all of us in the profession to cut fees, to do the work faster, because there's a perception that because we have Revit, we have these other technologies, we should be able to do more, do do it faster and, uh, and do it with less fee. And I think the, the, Young people who are going into the firms for, for summer internships are finding that and going, why the hell would I want that? <laughs> and and that, that's not something that's doesn't seem desirable and it's not worth the neck pain that I come home with from the monitors staring. You know, there's there's more to this profession. And I think that's what these younger kids are finding out, the younger students are finding out is that I can make more money, have less debt and still have a you know, still kind of operate on the fringe of art. That seems remarkable to me. So I, I salute them. And, and unfortunately, I don't think it is recoverable. Yeah. I mean, before we move on, because I, I think we've got a few other things to talk about, I just wanted to give uh, a few really inspiring examples of some of the other people that we've featured further back that, you know, some of our newer uh, readers may have not picked up on. For those of you that watch TV, there was Justin LeBlanc. He's a uh, he's a, a fashion designer that was on um, Project Runway. Um, we had back in in two thousand and nine. Uh, we featured David Galbraith, who was uh, who's who's a real brilliant uh, guy. He co-founded Yelp. Uh, he co-founded the RSS uh, feed standard, um, along with a lot of other very techy stuff. Um, and, uh, related to this podcast, um, we also featured my, my really good friend, Magnus Hierta, who actually designed the, the branding for this podcast, uh, including an animated intro that we're going to release sometime soon. Um, and he's, he's been doing really well right now. He's, uh, he's the director of motion graphics at a, at an advertising agency on the East coast. And you probably have seen his work if you watch TV because he actually, uh, developed the latest Oreo campaign, which has been win- winning tons of awards. It got, uh, it actually premiered during the Super Bowl, I-, I believe, last year. So, I mean, he went from architecture to, you know, just the top of the industry with uh, advertising and branding. So, I mean, those are just a few of the examples that I wanted to kind of uh, leave the listeners with to to be inspired. Speaking of the Super Bowl, you'll have to come and do a feature on uh, Andrew Luck, the Colts quarterback who got his architecture degree <laughs> in California. I can't remember which school before he came and joined the, the Colts as a quarterback. So there's a good architecture lateral transition move is to become quarterback for an NFL team. <laughs> wow. That is. That is. I think it's yeah. Stanford. It was, I, think I think it was Stanford. Stanford. You're right. It was Stanford. <laughs> wow. Well, speaking of sports, uh, Miguel, who the, the co-founder of WeWork, actually was on the uh, the Ducks uh, basketball team at the University of Oregon as well. So somehow, I don't know. I mean, this this goes to uh, to say how amazing he is. Somehow, he was he he was able to manage being an architecture student and being on the college basketball team simultaneously, which was a pretty amazing feat. So let's move on. Next up on the list, uh, I think we're we're talking about the. Uh, the controversial results to the Helsinki Guggenheim competition. Yeah. So the stage oh. one. Of, <laughs> 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 Sorry. It's exhausting just exactly. thinking about it. Yes. 
All right. So now that everyone, everyone has <laughs> exhaled their, their bad thoughts, we'll, we'll look at this with fresh eyes. Uh, so we recently posted a, a sampling of a few of the um, entries to the stage one of the Guggenheim Helsinki competition on our Connect and on Bustler. Uh, so you probably, we, we've certainly been kind of scratching our heads over this one. Um, <laughs> the cover image that we used for the Arconnect news post, uh, features a building that most people have immediately identified as a baked potato, um, which is really hard to dispute once you look at it, uh, or dispel once you have seen it, you're never going to look at that again and think that's not a baked potato. Um, <laughs> I think it was supposed to be stone, right? But boy, does it look like potato skin. <laughs> yeah. Big Idaho. <laughs> Which may be a comment about the Finnish diet. I'm not sure. Maybe there's something about <laughs> potatoes and the cycle of agriculture. And maybe there's some uh, illusion that's just over my head. But I think um, so this was one of the very popular, um, very highly commented news posts on, on Arconnect. And to see what people are saying is is really, it goes beyond the simple ooh, ah, point and shouted how horrible that thing looks. Um, and people got very much into very feisty about the conversation of uh, essentially the market of unpaid architecture competitions. So people who work to many, many hours, hundreds of thousands of hours to uh, submit, make a submission to a high profile competition. And if they don't progress or they don't win any prize money, they've effectively been working for free. Um, and this was one of the, has this competition in particular has been getting a lot of attention, not only because it's a very high profile, uh, competition, but because it has so many entries that, um, it's very quickly adds up how much labor is going into this and how few people who are contributing that labor are ever going to see any, um, profit from that, at least monetarily. Uh, so maybe <laughs> does anyone have a specific work either featured on Arconnect? um, or maybe they saw elsewhere uh, that they'd like to discuss and like look at the actual design of and maybe have a, a real conversation about so we don't get stuck up so much on like, well, that just looks like a baked potato. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think for me personally, a bigger, I, I haven't been that that particularly interested in the, uh, in the specific entries. I've just been a little um, blown away as most people have by just, the format of this competition, I mean, this competition received 1,715 submissions, which is the most submissions that any large-scale competition has ever received. It's more than the uh, Alexandria Library competition, um, any, anything else. I mean, how can, how can anybody, as, as this, is, this has been brought up by, by many people, um, I don't think this question has really been addressed, but, um, you know, how can a jury realistically review all these submissions. And if the competition uses uh, a public voting strategy, I mean, is that, is that fair? Is it fair to, to decide what a museum, what, what design should be selected for such a major project based on what the public thinks of the renderings? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, the, the last competition I can recall of this scale and you, you you went to the Alexandria um, Museum, but I, when I first saw this, and I went to the site and I saw the gallery, the first thing that came to mind was um, the uh, memorial for nine eleven, and that had the same. I and I don't know how many entries. It seemed like there was a lot more entries from that for that project um, as well. And, you know, there's this idea I think that Guggenheim's trying to latch onto being this kind of egalitarian kind of proposition where. 
hey, we're going to invite the entire world. We're going to show everyone. We're just not going to hand this to Frank Gehry or Zaha Hadid. We're going to demonstrate that we're a fair and open and honest competition. And I read, I read not a lot. Of, I didn't read a whole lot of the brief because I was mind numbing at 71 pages. Um, and I was kind of floored at uh, a lot of the designs. I'm like, did they even read the brief? Um, but it bothers me that a competition, which I don't, I couldn't find out if there was an entry fee. Uh, Don and I were talking about that before. Um, but there's this, this crowdsourcing idea around design is just absurd. It's always been absurd. I mean, that, that axiom holds true. The, the, a, a, is um, a camel is a horse designed by a committee. I mean, what are we going to get if 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 we did like what Howard Stern did for um, uh, for one of the uh, the the shows, one of the those um, oh, American Idol? He got everyone behind Sanjaya. Sanjaya was the worst singer there. This particular candidate was the worst. he got him through. By sheer numbers, by getting his his audience to vote for this particular individual, what if we did the same thing and got behind the worst entry and pushed that along? I mean, are they really going to suggest to me that that's that's the one that's going to be constructed? I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, they should you know show their cards, and they've got a lot of jurors involved, and it's frustrating to see this kind of effort put in when you know it's not going to go to. 99.9% of those entries. I mean, it's absurd. I, I uh, you know, Paul, going back to your comment about should the public be voting on this? Uh, you know, I have been involved in a locally in a, um, a competition called five by five in Indianapolis, where sev three big donors have given money to um, look at presentations by five different people, five minutes each. And then there's a public vote and there's a jury and the winner gets a $10,000 prize to implement the idea. Well, the one I was involved in, um, the jury is, you know, they're educated people. They're, they're connected to the city. They know what's going on. They know what will work or won't pretty generally. Um, and surprisingly, the one I, I was most recently involved in the, um, the public vote was overwhelmingly for one that the the more the jurors did not um, had to actually put down fairly low on their list. I mean, I think it's great to know that, to know that the public gets excited about certain ideas. But when it comes to really picking something, you want you want people who are, you know, who, who have an idea of what can really benefit a city, what can really benefit people, what will last, what has staying power, you know, what what's what's intelligent work, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I've seen this firsthand just because, you know, we've we've hosted a number of competitions on Arconnect over the years. And a few of those have included both a uh, jury-reviewed uh, prize as well as a publicly-reviewed prize. And the differences in opinions are quite drastic. I, you know, I think when it comes to online public uh, votes, you know, a lot of that is kind of knee-jerk reaction. Um, people, I think, inherently like clicking radio buttons and pressing submit, uh -huh. you know, and I, I don't think there's that much thought that goes into the, into that process. Um, and, you know, also I just, I don't think that most people are qualified to decide on, on, uh, you know, I mean, look at some of the most interesting buildings throughout history. They're not necessarily buildings that would come across that, that nicely in a one page poster or, you know, wouldn't provide glamorous renderings or, or you know, renderings that would appeal to, to, uh, to anyone, really. But the experience that they, that they 
uh, created as a result of being designed by an architect that knew what he or she was doing and understood the the uh, the, the value of creating good space and not necessarily fancy fancy renderings. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, this is one of the problems with competitions is you need to do something that's going to stick in the jurors' mem- minds, right? You have to have that one big glamour shot, um, which the potato, for example, is. <laughs> but but this was what I commented on the thread about the the entries was, you know, I wanted to dig in and see where were there some that were in there that had some thoughtful space making, space for, spaces for humans. And those things don't always look so flashy and sexy on a, a presentation board. Those are the experiences, the experiential quality of walking through them, smelling, hearing, all of those things, the phenomenological things that um, that don't come through real well in a great, gorgeous rendering. So, I mean, is it safe to say that to be a judge for an architecture competition, it is a requirement to at least be an architect and have experience designing spaces, you know, to understand uh, the the values and, and the the potential drawbacks of a design, you know, some, to a point where, you know, the, the general public just cannot comprehend. Well, I'd like to bring up a prior, much lower profile competition that um, had a lot of criticism for not necessarily who was on the jury, but how the renderings that were then relayed into the actual reality. This was the Flint Flat Lot competition oh, in um, yeah. Michigan, in Flint, mm-hmm. Michigan, which, yeah, every, all those chuckles yeah. refer to. <laughs> we'll make sure to, we'll make sure yes. to put that in the show notes Absolutely. for those of you that don't know what we're talking about. Uh, so that competition had um, a lot of very, it was popular once the um, winner was announced, the renderings were beautiful. Long story short, the end product looks like a piece of cardboard wrapped in tinfoil. And the this was like com- completely, not only kind of insulting to a lot of the people who had either participated in the competition and not won it, but also to the whole nature of representing architecture in its theoretical form when it's still not built. Um, and so this is something that I see playing into the Guggenheim competition of if we are going so much on the rendering, like even known professional jurors are still going to be swayed by something as beautiful as a rendering and they can't be held responsible necessarily for a bad application of the product. But at the same time, I think that they're better uh, prepared to anticipate where things could go wrong than a general population. So yeah, I can, the whole (laughs) camel is a horse by committee. This house is like perfect. It's just like, that's, that's what really could happen. Yeah. And I, you know, that, I remember that, that competition well. And I think part of what a lot of annoyed, a lot of people was the materiality, the way it was finished and the things that were left out that they couldn't fundraise, but no one actually knew that that was part of the problem with the, with the design. And when it was, when it was realized, you know, the problem with, with judging from a render and and again, I think it should be noted that this first round of the competition, it's just the first round or they're obviously going to go to another round where hopefully they'll be asking those that go that move forward to be a little bit more forthcoming in in providing detail um, and, and fleshing out the uh, the programmatic spaces a little bit better um, and, and making sure that these things can be fully realized in, in some shape or form. I mean, they're obviously going to have to team up with a much larger, depending on the firm, obviously, and if they finally figure out that one of the designs is uh, Stephen Hall or, or, or Amorphosis, then obviously they can you know handle that work without a, a larger firm, uh, you know, being the architect of record. 
But if it was a smaller firm, they're really going to be working with someone who's going to probably do the same thing that happened to the, the young guy that that won the 9-11 uh, memorial. You know, he's going to there's going to be a lot of changes with these projects. And I think that's part of the problem with renderings that I think inherently I have with them. The more finished and the more polished they are, the more there is an expectation that what I'm seeing is what I should be seeing when I go out there. I should be able to take this out there and go. Because that's what the public does. The public says, well, you, you've, you've kind of baited and switched here. You kind of pulled a tucker on me. You've told me I'm going to get this great car and I, in this great ad. And then you pull up and there's no great car, no great, you know. So it, I think the part of, that's part of the problem. And, and they're kind, we're kind of stuck in, you know, we want to have this flashy image, which all these images are flashy. And then we really have a two-paragraph statement about the about the, the the design impulse around around this uh, beautiful image, and we're left lacking. And um, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll get some more meat on these bones. And and um, I'm giving them a little bit of a pass on the ones that I liked, hoping that I'll see a little bit more uh, information. Well, going off the, the you know the notion that the text that was attached with, with each of these entries was just a paragraph or two, and were really not the, the texts were very hard to decipher in a lot of ways but i may i read i read probably 25 of them looking over them and one of them it was a very it was a nice image the the um the sort of an aerial view of the uh white these white atrium spaces was very pretty and very well done and then there was an interior space rendering that i really especially like the ones that showed some interior space but this one in particular in the text said that there would be public pathways through the museum so that rather than having to pay a fee or or go through the security or anything, you could, as part of your walk through the city, you could walk through the museum. And I wouldn't have known that from the uh, renderings, but it was it was made apparent in the text. And that put me in the mind of um, James Sterling's Neue Stats Gallery in Stuttgart, which has this public path that you can descend from a higher level of the city down to a lower level by walking through the basically outdoor atrium space of the museum. And it's a beautiful public walkway. The building itself, of course, is is very postmodern. So it's being reviled right now. But in 70 years, we will love it again. Um, but as for how it functions in the city, it's absolutely perfect. And this one entry that I will, if we can put some of our favorites in, in the show notes, um, I will put it in the show notes as saying in the text that it has these public pathways through it which I think is a really important thing and not something you can show real well in renderings. Well, in my opinion, I think we need to, I think we going back to, you know, the volume of entries, um, you know, I think that we're looking, when it comes to competitions, there's two problems right now. Some competitions are invited competitions that are not open to the countless number of talented, qualified architects that, that could pr- produce, you know, really amazing proposals. But then there's, you know, the, these uh, open competitions open to the public where um, there are so, there's such a huge volume of entries, you know, inevitably there's got to be, there's got to be, you know, a few amazing submissions in there that are just going to slip through the cracks and will not make it to the, to the finals because they either are not, uh, you know, it's not a recognizable name or the presentation is just not eye-catching enough to, to uh, keep it alive. So, you know, I think that right now there's, it's an exciting time with, you know, with the, the, uh, the internet and, and the way that information is being shared and collaborated on, that there is a way to kind of find a middle ground between, you know, allowing, opening up these opportunities to a wider audience while at the same time moderating uh, or, or managing uh, quality. I don't know. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, having these opportunities to uh, rethink how we do competitions is going to be a, a real thing we'll have to deal with as soon as this is um, this ends up. Um, and maybe a, a good segue out of the competitions conversation into the topic that has been floating over most of the, what seems like the entire internet uh, for the past week. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, you guessed it, Gary's middle finger uh, proposed. Yeah. And finally, you stuck around Woo! to the end of the podcast and you can listen to this. Um, <laughs> I think, Donna, you, you uh, I think you need to uh, start this off because I know that as soon as news of this broke before we even uh uh shared the gizmodo <laughs> link on on our connect i i saw you commenting about it uh so maybe you can share some thoughts about so i saw it on twitter at work and it honestly it made my day like it just it i got so excited when i saw this image of frank gary flipping someone off i just was like yes fighting back and um you know i from what i understand from the gizmodo article um the question was asked, um, you know, what, what would he say to people who said his work is too showy? And, I, you know, I hope when I'm 85 that I can just flip people off with impunity because when you get to be that age and that stature, uh, you know, cut him some slack. Uh, he was obviously tired. But I will also say I saw Gary lecture in 1990. Nine, yeah, 1990. And he, at the time, I was quite offended by it. But now that I'm older, I understand it. He said, someone asked him a question. I don't remember what it was. And he said, you know, giving these lectures and talks is great. But frankly, I'd just rather be in my studio working. I just want to do my work. I, you know, that's I, I do these talks because I need to. But whatever. I'd much rather be in my studio working. And that's essentially what he still answered, you know, 20 years later, 27 years later, that, uh, yeah, I, I just want to do my work. Don't bother me about it. Just let me do it. And... I, my final real main comment on it was, you know, his clients are hiring to him to do his work. Don't ask him why he's doing it. Ask the clients, why do they want that work? Because they know that's what they're going to get when they hire him. Well, that, and, that's, <laughs> and that's what drives me nuts about people in our profession, right? So we're supposed to be, and I've never really liked the term, but we're supposed to be a service-oriented industry. We serve at the pleasure of our clients. We didn't have a client. We wouldn't be architects. There wouldn't be anything for us to do. I mean, if we work outside the box, yes. But if we're working in architecture, we need these clients. And on the one hand, we, we, you know, we can reject Gary. But I think what's great about Gary and these other star architects is that they, they, by sheer by their sheer force and power they they're almost like a um uh their star power has actually they're they're attracting the right kind of client um and and, and by that it it helps to understand that i think when they're attracting these big name clients who want to do this showy architecture it provides space for other smaller architects to actually do some really really good things that a lot of us admire so, you know, Gary's responding, like Donna said, I mean, he's serving his client. He's doing his client well. So, yeah, why not flip everybody? I'm surprised he didn't get up in there and moon the guy because, you know, that's <laughs> honestly what I would love to see him. Do. I mean, he, that's that's really the, the best response to someone who says, you know, if he didn't do what his client wanted, would he be Frank Gary? Would we be having this conversation? I think another interesting thing that, that uh, has come up with this is that a lot of the response to this is that, you know, oh, you know, Frank Gary, he's a grumpy old man, you know, like what a curmudgeon, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, is this, is this response because of his actions or because of his age? Because I have a feeling that, you know, if a young architect like Bjarke or, or someone um, did the same thing, 
people would be like, yeah, I mean, that's punk rock. I mean, what a radical, you know, like, you know, give it to them. You know, it's, I, th- I think that the, uh, the attitude or the, the, the response might be a little bit different. I think this is all wrapped up in who the general population perceives Gary to be. If someone like Bjarke Ingels did this, it would be exactly that. It'd be, yeah, punk rock, whatever. If someone like just starting out in their career did this, they probably wouldn't get so much farther. <laughs> you know, it's I, what bothered me so much, I think, about um, this whole storm that came after it and how now we have a Tumblr devoted to Photoshopped images of uh, <laughs> black, uh, black and white in particular, I which is classy, I guess, um, of people putting Gary's, Gary's hand. Uh, sometimes it confused me if it was right or left, but Gary's hand on these famous architects. What I just thought it was a missed opportunity by him. If he's asked by a reporter whose job it is most likely is, uh, not necessarily to, bring what Gary has to say explicitly to an architectural audience, but to a larger audience, if Gary could kind of take up that opportunity and yeah, kind of have to play his own PR agent, but take up an opportunity like that and just like shut the guy down, shutting him down with a middle finger is going to corner him in the crotchety old man, let him do what he wants territory. If he decides to say something, if if he instead chose to say something like, oh, um, that interpretation is flawed for these reasons, or let me tell you what could be happening, or let me look at the alternatives to what you say is showy. Just, you know, any other angle than just like refusing to engage with it. That that was what kind of struck me as a little bit annoying about it is I just wanted him to, you know, respect this reporter doing his job and uh, maybe in- engage with him a little bit more on the, on a, on the same level. Well, as a future crotchety old man, uh, let me just state for the record <laughs> I think what I think what Frank did was punk. <laughs> and and I think it's perfectly within his um, demeanor from what I've what I've heard about him and people who have um architecture students have who have gone to his house and tried to knock on his door. I've heard stories about um some unsuspecting students going out there and having I don't know, dog poop thrown over the fence um, because they were wanting to take pictures. So it's perfectly within his, um, and I believe he's from Canada too, isn't he? Um, So it's perfectly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's originally from Toronto, but I think he's been in in, uh, California for most of his stuff. He came when he was pretty young. Yeah. But he's still very much, uh, you know, Canadian, big (laughs) hockey fan. I mean, I. I actually love the fact that he did this because, you know, I think it's refreshing these days because, you know, we're so used to seeing these um, designed public figures, you know, politicians, celebrities, uh, CEOs that are just trained to say exactly what they're supposed to say. And they, they seem to be, they seem to care more about their, about their image than than what they do. And he obviously doesn't give a shit about his image because he's, he kind of, you know, he makes these gaffes a lot. And, you know, that, that makes me think like, he's just focusing on what he does and he, he doesn't care about everything else and, you know, good for him. Yeah, I totally agree. Frank is OG. I'm telling you, (laughs) he's going to send a new trend out there. (laughs) Should we move on? Any other, any other uh, thoughts on this topic? I mean, are are we just beating a dead horse? It seems like <laughs> I'm sure everyone's wow. going to be happy. It was cold. Oh, duh, oh my god! Oh, yeah. It was cold. No, I I am like Amelia said. It it's it it 
it's fun to me that it's taken over the whole internet, it seems. You know, everyone's talking about it. And I would also say if he had not been on The Simpsons, I don't think it would have been as received as well either. You know, he he bought some street cred with going on The Simpsons that not many architects have. So. Oh, yeah, that's a fantastic episode. I think that's like they try to do the Bill Bow effect in Springfield, basically, by bringing in Frank Gehry. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Great episode. <laughs> But I'm 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 personally finished talking about Gary's middle finger. I'm good. <laughs> uh, shall we move on to some endorsements for the week? If anyone has something they'd like to uh, put forward, yeah. Uh, so I read over as much as I've seen of the reporting from the Acadia conference, um, and uh, Anthony Mori is who has I've read two posts from, I believe. Um, and I just, the, the the first day's reporting sounded really great and interesting and very thinky. And then day two, he said, I loved the title of his day two report, which was Numbers Don't Cast Shadows. And the day two report was all about the getting into the materiality, the fabrication, the actual applications and use of materials using the, the kind of computer-aided um, manipulations that are now possible. So I think he's done a, a, a nice job of, of reporting on how broad ranging this, um, the Acadia conference topics are, and our, our guest last week covered it really well as well. Um, I wanted, it reminded me, I wanted to bring up the, uh, book by Cory Doctorow called Makers, um, which is about sort of how, uh, people tinker which this relates also to what we we spoke with earlier with Greg, um, how people like to tinker about things they're passionate about. And in the book, in the novel, it's a novel, Makers, um, there, it becomes possible to crowdsource that tinkering in a way that changes things based on people's emotions, basically changes physical objects based on emotions. And um, I think it's a really interesting, you know, way that we're going to be living in the world that's coming soon. So I just wanted to point out uh, Anthony's reporting on the Acadia Conference. Thanks, Donna. Yeah, I've been really excited to work with Anthony to um, kind of coordinate his reporting there, as well as Alex, who's also um, on staff here at Arconnect. And he is just like our go-to for that. He's been there. all. He will have been at Acadia for all three days. And um, we're going to put some more coverage uh, around his attendance there on the site pretty soon, including um, a talk by Casey Reyes, who gave a keynote lecture there, um, as well as also the another few of the keynotes were Zaha Hadid and Will Wright, the inventor of SimCity. So totally more stuff from Acadia coming up. Um, Donna, anything else to add? I just, I noticed uh, again on uh, Twitter that people, there were architecture students in the audience taking selfies with Zaha in the background. So if you want to talk about celebrity and architecture, <laughs> that that's, that's, here's a selfie of me with Zaha on stage. That's, what counts as background? Like, you know. She was on stage and they were in like row 15. <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh, wow. we'll share some of the photos that Alex took uh, in line for this event, you know, and that that's proof enough of Zaha's celebrity. It was it was crazy. It was like, uh, I don't know, it's like a Rolling Stone concert or something, <laughs> judging by the photos. I, I didn't go, but, um, you know, there were people that couldn't get in. The lineup was, as far as the eye could see, it was it's pretty amazing. I mean, relative to uh, Will Wright's uh lecture that that Amelia you went to you said that it wasn't even half full I mean this is the inventor of SimCity he's a pretty interesting character I mean beyond just uh just that yeah I was really surprised at the relatively low turnout um but I think that might have just had to do more with the maybe SimCity it's in 1989 is when it first came out so I doubt that there's a any I, I would question any architect in school today who 
says they were not at all influenced by SimCity or have no idea what it is. I'm sure like everyone has some uh, attachment or knowledge of it somehow, and it's somehow affected how they conceive of the city. But in terms of celebritum, as far as I know, Will Wright has never designed a thing that looked like another thing that got him in trouble on the internet or designed things too big to fit somewhere. So he just hasn't had like the controversial status. He doesn't have, he has no, as far as I know, no diva status to, uh, put his lines out the door, but he nevertheless gave a really uh, fantastic talk that uh, we'll also have coverage up on the site pretty soon. So the, the two things that I think I, one thing I'm looking at right now, and I think I saw the other piece on our connect as well. Um, and it's, it's pretty interesting about the, about the timing um, about two years now, since uh, Sandy hit the East coast, um, turning Boston into Venice. And there was another piece I saw um, where New York city is looking at how to deal with the, uh, the water coming into the city. Um, so those two things, it seems like I think FEMA's redrawn their um, maps for flooding. And so it's having an impact. And and it's nice to see that the East Coast is finally starting to address uh, what the, is uh, the inevitable issue with the uh, water coming into um, the lower regions around major metropolitan areas. So that's kind of the thing I'm interested in reading more about now. Yeah, somewhat related to that, actually, Ken, is um, something that I wanted to point out on the site, which is an article posted by um, Nicholas Cordry about um, this little widget that BBC has created that shows you how areas in the world have changed since you were born. Um, so it's a really simple concept. You just put in the year that you were born and it shows you a map of where you were born. And then it shows you the things that are now in existence that weren't when you first were born or the things that are now gone. Um, so whether that's the changing sea level. Um, if you were born in Manhattan, that'll probably look very different. Um, or if it's the, in the case of the, this, um, news piece in the cover image, whether it's the existence of a whole new city that was built within your lifetime. Um, and I think that having a tool so simple as this to really visualize so, so just immediately, um, things that now exist that didn't before, or just how in a relatively short lifespan of maybe two dozen years or so, how much has really been enacted upon the surface of the earth. Um, this is like just another one of the many ways we have to use to get people to understand all of these different things that are happening in terms of not just climate change, but urbanization and um, all of the effects of that. So I would totally, if no matter your age, Gary, 85, I want to see the screenshot of Gary putting in like how the world has changed, He's 85. And then he gets to zoom in on Grand Avenue in LA and see what he has changed in the world. But uh -huh. uh, <laughs> me personally, you know, I had a great, I had a great time playing around with this little widget. All right. Well, I think that uh, it's time to wrap this call up. It's, uh, it's getting to be about that time. As always, you can follow us and send us messages via Twitter. Uh, it's twitter.com forward slash Arconnect. And uh, use the hashtag uh, sessions four if you want to mention anything about this about this episode, and we promise we will respond if you have a question. Also on Facebook, facebook.com uh, forward slash Arconnect. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that we have a lot of RSS feeds. So if you don't like following everything that's going on on Arconnect, which, you know, there aren't too many people that want to get it all, um, you can pick your you can pick your favorite content to to follow through your favorite RSS reader. My favorite's Feedly. Uh, in no way am I promoting them because I'm not affiliated whatsoever, but I love Feedly. It's, uh, I've got it open all day. Yeah, so thank you to, uh, to you guys, Amelia, Donna, Ken. I think it was a good talk. Yeah. 
Always is. Yeah, thank you. All right. Until next week. Until next week.